I'm Alina Utrada, and this is the Anti-Dystopians, the politics podcast about tech. The Anti-Dystopians is hosted and produced by me to provide a space to have conversations about radical and critical approaches to technology. If you'd like to support the production of the Anti-Dystopians, you can subscribe to our email newsletter by following the links below. We also include links to articles, books, or other additional reading mentioned in our conversations, as well as alerts about upcoming episodes, so be sure to take a look. To stop the world from descending into dystopia, subscribe to the Anti-Dystopians wherever you get your podcasts. So hi, everybody. Um, Today, we're going to be talking about technology, surveillance, feminism, and reproductive rights. And we have two guests on. Uh, First is Julia Swupska, a DPhil candidate at the Oxford Internet Institute, researching feminist theories and methodologies to improve cybersecurity and approaches to technologically mediated abuse. Um, And a returning guest, Steph Felsberger, uh, a PhD candidate in gender studies at Cambridge University, studying surveillance, data capitalism, and period tracking apps. So thanks, Julia and Steph, so much for being on. I am super excited to like be here again to have another <laughs> conversation. <laughs> yeah, and th- thanks so much for inviting me. Great. So maybe we could begin a bit um, with you and your backgrounds, um, kind of like what brought you here, what motivated you to research uh, gender studies and, and critical text. So maybe, Julia, you can go first as uh, as the new uh, anti-dystopians uh, guest. Yeah, so... I will say I I studied international relations at undergrad and I really liked feminist theory and feminist approaches to security and international relations, but I didn't actually think to apply it to my research um, until after I'd started a PhD and I was in a cybersecurity department. And at that point, it started to feel like feminist theory was something that was very necessary in this field and underappreciated. And I, I feel like we'll probably talk about this a bit more later. But cybersecurity as a as a discipline and as an industry is very kind of male dominated, both in the sense of demographics, but also quite uh, can be heavily masculine in terms of being at the intersection of technology and security, which are very masculinized concepts. So I think, yeah, um, yeah, focus on gender and approaches from feminist theory can be a really useful corrective in that kind of a space. Well, and there's a there's a fun version and then there's the academic version to this answer. <laughs> uh, I heard people tell you that you need to pick a topic that you don't get sick of for your PhD. And I talk about my period a lot and I talk about periods a lot and I talk about surveillance and capitalism a lot. So it seemed like a combination of all of these were a very good thing to pick for my PhD. Um, but I mean, I guess the more official answer is that I've been very, because I I worked at a research center in Egypt and it was a lot of, I was basically, it was, we were looking at a lot of like different like techno-solutionist approaches um, to fix so many different societal problems. And I found that a very interesting like site of study. And I feel like the period trackers are kind of a good example for that because they're trying to have this like, you know, it's like a technological fix for, for like a problem around, you know, knowledge, reproductive knowledge, reproductive choices. Um, And yeah, so at the same time, also, it's like such an example for like commodification and like extraction of your data, you don't have a say over what's happening. Um, So I thought it was an interesting, an interesting, yeah, intersection of these things. So Julia, uh, maybe you could start first. I mean, a lot of your research is taking, as you kind of mentioned in your um, introduction, you know, you take a feminist approach to cybersecurity. So I think it's what was really interesting and striking about some of your articles is the way in which you talk about, you know, cybersecurity is is con- considered um, male dominated, like hacking attacks or things like that. But things that we think of in gendered terms, um, like, you know, violence against women, um, that that happen on various like tech products, 
um, or technologies is not is not um, thought of as this kind of male dominated militarized cybersecurity. Um, so maybe you could talk a little bit more about about your research. Like, what do you think is like the value of trying to like add a feminist lens to to cybersecurity and using the cyber um, security uh, a framework uh, specifically? Yeah, so this is an area where I draw a lot on feminist critiques of security and the kind of critical approaches to security more broadly, which often are focused on the sort of process of problematization or how we come up with what counts as a security problem, what gets securitized and what doesn't get securitized. And um, obviously there are, there are very many feminisms. I think there's potentially hundreds of feminist critiques you could make of security and I'm only making one um but or maybe a couple but the <laughs> one that I'm drawing on is a sort of a well-established feminist critique of security from theorists writing back to like the 80s like Carol Kahn um who note how issues like war uh terrorism um will get classed as security issues and studied under the realm of security, uh, considered a national security issue. Um, but security issues like violence against women, which statistically speaking, kills many, many more people a year than uh, than terrorism and also more than war in, in most countries, um, doesn't get considered in those conversations. And they will often link that to a sort of binary of public and private issues, where public issues like those classed as national security issues are considered political, they're considered something that the state has to do deal with, while private issues are individualized. And um, that critique seemed incredibly, unfortunately, still very relevant and still very pertinent in this new field of cybersecurity where cybersecurity as a discipline coming out of engineering is actually in many ways mostly focused with corporate security and defending companies, defending um, private property, but also with military security and defending states. But as a discipline, cybersecurity doesn't really pay attention to these quote unquote private matters like reproduction, like um, sexual violence, like domestic violence um, in ways that are very gendered. And that means that those problems are often not included in how technology is designed, often not included in those kind of formal responses to defending data or defending technology. So I think there's a lot of benefit, both on the kind of critique of like what is and isn't included as a security issue. But also, I think feminism will offer a lot of concepts and methodologies and frameworks that are quite useful to, to, to reconfigure or rewire cybersecurity. Uh, like ideas of care and consent and participatory methodologies. That's so interesting. So I wonder if maybe do you do want to talk about a specific example? Like I was thinking about like revenge porn as cybersecurity, or is there any examples that kind of come to mind where that framework um, can be helpful in, in in reframing? Yeah. So I think revenge porn for me is quite a striking example. I would say researchers in the field and advocates are quite critical, I think with good reason, I, I would count myself in this group, are quite critical of the term revenge porn because it will, um, it introduces the assumption that people do this for revenge. So maybe the person did something wrong, which can be victim blamey and also classifies these images as pornography, which I don't really think they are. Mm -hmm. So people will use terms like image-based sexual abuse or non-consensual intimate image sharing, which are which can be a bit of a mouthful and also not very transparent uh, yet um, to, to some people outside of the field. But um, that being said, I think image-based sexual abuse is interesting to think about as a case study of like what we think of as a cybersecurity issue or not. Because in a company, if somebody shares data with an unauthorized third party, that's immediately considered to be a cybersecurity issue. It's like uh, you have a whole field of insider threat. Often in a company, if you share an email with a kind of, if you're at Google, or I don't know if this is actually true at Google, but let's say if you share um, an email with somebody outside of your company, then that will automatically be flagged. If you get fired, you often lose the ability to access certain files. But um, we don't think about data in relationships in a similar way. So um, we don't think about giving people rights 
over rights and kind of control over their data in the way that we think of giving companies rights and control over their data. So it could be very much the case that we would set up access control systems for intimate images so that when you break up, you can revoke access to intimate images. And that would be the kind of proactive approach that I think cybersecurity introduces. Um, but instead we can, we, we repeat or like socially, we often repeat this individual responsibility approach, which is like, you shouldn't have shared those images in the first mm -hmm. place. Um, or you should only share them with people you trust rather than trying to give people more control over their data through the technology. It's interesting too, the the thinking about applying new or like feminist lenses to um, the way we generally talk about technologies or surveillance technologies. Um, because Steph, you've been on the podcast before and you've talked about period tracking apps, but we we often talk about them through like an economic lens. So like either embedded in like data um, capitalism or or something about the way like the healthcare industry interacts with, um, you know, digital advertisers, et cetera. Um, but then obviously, you know, a couple of months ago in the United States, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and like the right to abortion in the U.S. catalyzed this whole new conversation about period tracking apps. Um, and its intersection with like the criminalization of abortion and the carceral state. Um, so I wonder then for like the both of you, like how um, like how do you think about uh, this kind of new discourse around uh, period like period tracking apps specifically, but also the criminalization of abortion and surveillance tech um, more generally? Uh, do you think it's being talked about in the right way? Is it being applied the right lenses? Is it is the right framing? Are you still worried about, you know, that like the economic effects or, or, or has it brought kind of a new lens and a new work and a new urgency to the types of research you do? I feel like they're all intertwined, right? Because of how, uh, and this is a basic like thing in terms of all kinds of like state surveillance is also, thriving so much because of how much corporate surveillance there is because of how everything and anything we do at the moment is being tracked and recorded through the devices that we are doing uh, that we are using and those are the kinds of things that states or like anyone who's interested in policing and surveilling people can access through either purchasing it online which has happened in several cases or by trying to like get access to them through a subpoena or by, I don't know, trying to get access on the, through them, through the, the actual physical devices, for example. So I feel like they're still very, very intertwined. Um, and I found it quite, and like Julia and I have talked about this, like it's quite, it's been quite interesting the way that this has been also focused on period tracking apps, because obviously they're not the only source that is used to or the only the only space in which this recent criminalization of abortion um like i guess not plays out but there's so many other there's search google searches like if you just look up um how to access abortions there's location data and there's many many other different things um messages that you send your your family messages that you send your friends um that maybe people don't even think about and then maybe even if you delete your period tracker you might have some sort of false sense of security that you know if that's not there you're like fine now but then there's all these other things and, and we can go into like details of like examples or things that have happened in the past and maybe just another thing to bring it back to the economic um layer of it i've um there's this uh really famous story of a sociologist uh janet vertesi and she tried to hide her pregnancy from advertisers and it's just the length to which she had to go to do that uh was just staggering because she didn't try she didn't purchase anything she didn't uh with a credit card she didn't buy anything online she didn't subscribe to any pages she only went to pages with a like a VPN, she only used encrypted messaging to talk about the baby. Um, she used to buy gift vouchers so that she could purchase things that were harder to buy that she couldn't buy in a shop. And it just, it's just a really stark example of how, how pervasive or like how ingrained in like the economic or the way that we live our lives and the way that 
and how all of this these actions become commodified how closely that is intertwined with the you know the risk or the policing of of these things what your question made me kind of think of is that from a from a securitization perspective i think there was a sense of surprise in some digital rights spaces or privacy discussion spaces in the US and I think the global north or um, minority world more broadly, where, and this is definitely not true of all researchers or all activists in this space, but I think it's fair to say that broadly speaking, digital rights and privacy advocates tend to talk about state surveillance affecting say women or marginalized groups as something that kind of happens out there over there somewhere uh, in, in less developed countries. And there's a lot of problems with that, but I think part of Roe versus Wade was a kind of wake up call that um, the US in particular and, and probably many other states in the global North also have these authoritarian tendencies, um, which are kind of perpetuating misogyny and the patriarchy. And this will not have been a surprise to, to many groups that are marginalized and criminalized in those countries but did seem to be a surprise. And I think some of the discussions on, on digital privacy um, and digital rights online uh, and in the media, where I think it also maybe points to some of the limitations of some forms of feminism and on and feminist thinking on gender-based violence, where we think of the threats, like threats to women as purely something in the intimate sphere. And this is maybe <laughs> yeah, pointing to some of the limitations of that feminist thinking, which is very focused on binaries of public versus private, where um, we are very ready to describe um, someone being stalked by an ex-partner uh, as online gender-based violence. But I think many of us, myself included, until like uh, uh, several months ago, weren't necessarily thinking of state, uh, sort of police stalking of marginalized people, including women, as a similar kind of online violence um, because of like a different version of that public-private binary, which I think um, Roe versus Wade and the kind of criminalization of abortion in the U.S. has put into stark contrast. Yeah, it, it it was striking to me too. I mean, I think Cynthia Cook had a, a really interesting kind of legal analysis, which we'll link obviously below, um, which was talking about the different, you know, as you brought up stuff, the different types of of mm -hmm. ways that surveillance technology are being used. So even there was though there was that discourse around, you know, the period tracking apps, um, Cynthia Cook's piece said basically like actually like stuff as you said, it's like search, search data and Google Maps data. So I wonder too, kind of like you touched on this, Julia, and your point um, about the way that like corporations are aiding um, uh, kind of the carceral state and the criminalization of, of uh, abortion. So I wonder uh, for you both, do you think about like the specific types of technologies, you know, like apps uh, that track your period or, or uh, you know, uh, messages or map data or or do you think about the corporations um because i like i noted like facebook almost like very quickly started taking down ads or, or information about abortion services on its platform in the wake of the ruling do you worry about this as a technology technology perspective like do you worry about specific type of technologies or maybe better i mean obviously we should be worried about both but like how do you think about these in terms of how these interact like do you think about them in terms of like specific technologies that can be used to track people and that's the problem or do you think that like corporations and specific actors might be problematic so like one example might be like wasn't there the like uh i can't remember who did it, it might have been vice uh it was like oh these period tracking apps have really good <laughs> privacy settings whereas like these don't and they're selling your data whereas these will only do it in terms of a subpoena so do you think that there are certain actors who are more or less likely to be to be aiding kind of like say police or prosecutorial sure i mean i feel like this touches upon one of the like i think really big debates in in this field because it's the question of whether you're looking at individual cases or systemic ways in which all of this happens right so like definitely there are 
some apps that do a better job at protecting user data. And there are definitely um, technological like solutions like encryption or other like if you can find a way to like safeguard your data but it usually comes at a very high social cost because you can't use certain platforms you can't purchase things in certain places um and it also requires quite a lot of knowledge on how to do these things and i feel like this is this is just one of the like and this i feel like also is why i i mean i wouldn't say i'm more uh, worried about the technology or specific companies, but it's because what I'm, or maybe also what I find the most, not scary, but like the most nefarious are kind of like the side effects of how also, because you have the targeted, very targeted surveillance, but then there are the very unexpected ways in which information about you might be revealed that you have absolutely no control over because this is, I don't know, ad data that gets sold uh, or like there's this geofencing example, right? Of like SafeGraph, uh, which was a a date of a firm that was selling location-based information about users or people who had gone to like a Planned Parenthood clinic. Um, and then that information, and then also where they came from and where they went to afterwards. And that information is something that can very easily be used to re like de-identify you afterwards, right? And that's something that you have very, very little control over and it doesn't matter what kind of app you use or if you've used Signal or not. And that's, so that's something that I feel like I might be, I'm personally the most like worried about, but also because I think there is a lot of focus already on the apps and there's a lot of focus on, you know, like some of the other things. I'm also not sure whether that framing of like, am I more focused on the apps or the, the companies or the technology itself? It's just because if we're looking at the history of reproduction and policing reproduction or controlling reproduction, it has a very, very, very long history, especially in the US. And I, I know we'll talk about this later, but so I feel like, um, so I feel like it's more a question of how does it play out given the current technological development and the technologies that we have rather than if we fix the technology or if we fix the companies, this will go away? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And it's not one I've really kind of thought about it in those terms. Like, is this a question of the technology versus the companies? Um, so maybe something I need to reflect on a bit more. Um, but I should note that there is also a, a kind of third dimension where some of this technology is actually, is maybe being produced by private companies, but is also being run by the state. And that will be more relevant in places where there's more nationalized healthcare. But yeah, I mean, I guess the other thing too I wanted to to talk about, maybe we could talk about, you know, you mentioned earlier that the the different feminisms. And so I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the importance of intersectionality when when approaching reproductive justice. Because obviously one of the things that was really striking to me um, about the, the abortion criminalization discourse, right, is that like the birth control pill is embedded in the history of eugenics. Um, and then also kind of the flip side of, of, um, of the right to abortion is, is the right to, you know, reproductive justice overall. So, you know, in the US um, and California actually had one of the biggest, biggest forced sterilization programs um, in the 20th century, you know, many black and brown people were forcibly sterilized um, without their knowledge in some cases and by the state. So I wonder how like, how do you think about uh, the framing of feminism and intersectionality um, in in reproductive justice more broadly, um, and and how like other cases or, or or other ways of thinking about this in in the context of surveillance technologies have come up? So I guess the first thing that comes to mind or is relevant is that the fr the framing of reproductive justice in general is something that I think was introduced by black and brown advocate like women's rights advocates i think some some of whom maybe would identify as feminist but um pointing out the ways that a lot of the white feminist movement in the u.s limits this conversation and activism around this issue to the question of abortion solely rather than uh, like you said forced sterilization uh lack of adequate health care for people who do want to have children so that they can raise uh, like birth and raise those children in healthy conditions 
and how this question is so much broader than the individual's sort of right to choose whether or not to, to, to terminate a pregnancy, um, as well as sort of knock-on questions of even if you legally have the right to choose, if you aren't able to take time off work, if you aren't able to travel, um, if you are an undocumented immigrant and therefore can't cross state uh, boundaries, um, there's so many added levels of difficulty in abortion access. Um, and I think those sort of intersect, like those intersections will play out in the digital privacy and the digital security debate as well, um, in that people who are sort of marginalized in different ways already face many more forms of state surveillance, uh, as well as both private corporate surveillance, um, which will mean that there's more data that can put them at risk. So thinking primarily of the way that um, immigrants and undocumented Im Im immigrants are heavily surveilled. Um, and so therefore they're, they're there, there's already more sort of data that can then be used to criminalize someone for for, for reproductive care. Um, yeah, I feel like my answer would have was going to look very similar to that uh, because I I also think that if you look look at that framing of reproductive justice, it's it, I don't know. It seems like the only way you could you should actually look at you know these mm. like debates around abortion and criminalization of abortion because otherwise you're just you're just not even you're just not getting the full picture because if you're looking at um i guess the history of plant parenthood in the u.s the way that um the way that played out and the way that margaret sanger like aligned herself with the eugenics movement as well to kind of legitimize like birth control like as like a scientific way of thinking around family planning and how that got turned into something that could have been like I, the idea of like, you know, having a choice over whether or not you have a child uh, or you become pregnant, how that very quickly got turned into like more like a state project on population control. Um, it's just, it's it has to be part of the conversation around criminalizing abortion as much as it has been then as it it needs to be now um and yeah and i think also uh so i wanted to make two book recommendations for people who are interested in it or maybe maybe three <laughs> so there is a um uh angela davis book woman race and class has a really excellent chapter on Margaret Sanger and the connections between the eugenics movement and also how that was very gladly supported by like the, the uh, you know capitalist at, at the time so I feel like it does that book does a really good job and then there's obviously Dorothy Roberts killing the black body and another book that's really excellent is the introduction to um Reproductive, it's called Reproductive Justice and Introduction by Loretta Ross and Ricky Solinger. Uh, and those books do a really, really great job and like will give you a really good introduction into like these histories and these debates and also how they're connected to all these other struggles that Julia has like talked about and like how they're intersected with all these different oppressions. And I think this is also kind of a way to like link it to the questions of surveillance because you know, like to kind of be able to um, materialize the goals that the reproductive justice um, framework has, like freedom from surveillance and state oppression for everyone needs to be part of the part of the question. Yeah, it, th those were both like really, really great answers. I, the thing that always, you know, I'm from California. So the thing that always is crazy to me is that, you know, California only banned forced sterilization in something like 2014. Um, because they were, you know, the, the program itself had the, the, the big kind of program that, um, was sterilizing tens of thousands of people had stopped, but it was in, um, only in, in the two post two thousands in which, you know, they, they, there was a, a law that said you can't forcibly sterilize. It was mostly women who had given birth in prison. Um, so that was another thing that came up in Cynthia Cook's, um, mm uh the legal analysis it was about um the surveillance of 
quote unquote bad pregnancies. So this is, you know, not just like, are you pregnant and are you going to seek an abortion? Um, but like the behaviors you do during your pregnancy, which may or may not be considered unsafe, like drinking wine or eating sushi, these kind of um, sort of like uh, behavioral, like, are, are you are you being good? Are you being responsible parents? And actually I was thinking a lot, um, there was a, a news story earlier this year in the UK in which um, a family in the UK uh, had custody of their children revoked because they were overweight and they had been tracked. They had been fitted with Fitbit trackers. And like the court said, you know, oh, we, you know, we use these Fitbits to see that like you weren't encouraging your kids to get exercise, which obviously, you know, intersects with everything we've been talking about in terms of race, in terms of like, um, socioeconomic status not have or uh, not being able to afford healthy food or have the time to exercise um so i wonder maybe we could discuss um like in your research beyond just like um reproductive justice how do these surveillance technologies intersect with like um maybe like quote unquote good citizen behavior um and and then how that relates to things like custody um and intersects with the carceral state you know beyond just um like the pregnancy framing but like uh families um overall one example that came to mind uh that came up in my research is an app called i may be getting this wrong but i believe it's called something like family wizard um that is a website that courts have sometimes mandated in cases of domestic violence that um is meant to help in situations of like in situations where you share custody with an abuser which is always incredibly tricky and it's a big site for technological abuse actually because you may be separated from a partner uh you you may even have some form of restraining order against them but then you need to continue to interact with them because of shared custody um or some combination of those cases, it can be really tricky. And so what these apps are meant to do is to make relationships between parents more legible to courts. So they will have the functionality of uploading documents, like um, of they'll have like a shared calendar, uh, which is used to manage custody. And this is something that I think is potentially kind of ambivalent from a from a domestic violence or feminist perspective because documenting abuse uh trying to provide evidence for courts is something that imposes enormous burdens on survivors um and so in a sense these apps do can make life easier because they kind of provide a a legible format for documenting something like if one parent isn't picking up children or if someone's sending abusive messages um but in another sense it does introduce an element of surveillance into like very intimate life like taking care of children um and so and and definitely does kind of mandate good behavior uh which is often a thing with with parenting um but i think it's an yeah, I don't think there's like a clear, I don't think this is a clear case of like custody app good or custody app bad because it's just a really difficult case. But I think it's an interesting case for thinking through some of these dynamics of like why um, the state gets involved in intimate lives sometimes. My my answers might be a bit more more broad and maybe less specific about an app, but more um what i can think of is kind of how the way that these menstruation tracking apps or fertility apps kind of interlink with these histories of um of controlling or like encouraging reproduction um so because you have so these i always use the word period tracking app because there's a bunch of different apps that have different focuses but most of them are most of them are programmed with like a cis white woman in mind that is either able to or wants to become pregnant or wants to prevent pregnancy. And that's also where most of the money is in like 
the market, like because the fertility market is really is a big market in in the US especially. Um, and so you have all these apps that are kind of programmed for that to kind of like, you know, make it easier for people to become pregnant so that they don't have to like pay all these like really expensive IVF treatments. So like there's a talk by the, the founder of Glow where he like explains this very beautifully and very scarily. Um, and so I was thinking about how these apps are kind of either portrayed as this like, you know, it will help you become pregnant, but in other, and like then targeted, for example, as like at like white middle-class women, for example. But there's also the case of um, the United Nations Population Fund, which is um, an organization that tries to bring family planning um, or teach ideas or like knowledge around family planning uh, to people and women in the global South, especially predicated on these ideas that less kids, uh, like all these like old ideas that also trace back to the idea of like eugenicism and the ways that Margaret Sanger was getting Planned Parenthood, um, you know, established that um, women who are poor or oppressed should have less children because that, you know, is kind of in the idea of like white feminism, the ultimate way of how you can be empowered and feel empowered. And then so you have the UNFPA has cooperations with Flow and like another app where they're trying to promote these apps, but then it's not through a, this is how you can easily become pregnant, but this is a, you know, this is a modern tool for family planning. So the the conversation around, you know, as we kind of touched, as both of you have kind of touched on the conversation around um, like technology and reproductive justice has really, you know, focused on the, the criminalization of abortion. And it's been very um, U.S. dominated be- since the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So I wonder, like, in your research, what does tech surveillance of reproductive justice look out- like outside of the U.S.? Um, and especially since, you know, as we see in, in the content moderation discussions, right, these are often places in which, like, tech companies, especially American tech companies, tend to, like, pay attention to less and, and um, apply less of a duty of care. So I think, well, I think one thing to note is that counterintuitively, the fact that tech companies um, pay less attention to some, like to many parts of the world that are not the US, uh, in this case, could be beneficial in some ways, because um, one issue that prosecutors in countries outside of the global north have faced is that their response times from uh tech companies are much slower. Um, So I spoke uh, with gender-based violence advocates in Serbia who said that their national prosecutor had requested um, data from a big US-based tech company and waited like, I think more than half a year, like months and months, even though it's the national prosecutor Uh, and and prosecutors in the US have much faster response times so that you started to see cases of, for example, like Facebook responding to subpoenas about um messages about abortion access very quickly which i think is an interesting example of how yeah i guess how how these private companies intersect with criminalization um and and enable the carceral state and criminalization but another interesting case that i wanted to talk about from outside of the us is in poland where um, abortion has been seriously restricted for a long time, like since 1993, but was even further criminalized in 2020 um, to include cases where there's a significant health risk to the, the mother or the fetus. Um, and more recently than that, there was um, there was a reported case that the government was considering a digitized uh, database of who is uh, of people who are pregnant, which would require doctors to sort of en- input into this digital system if anyone who comes uh, to get health care is pregnant, regardless of whether the healthcare care is related to pregnancy, which is something that doctors keep a record of anyway, but at the moment would be paper based. And the government sort of responded that this is a totally normal move towards digitalization. But in the context of this ongoing process of abortion being criminalized, um, 
I think rightly advocates were deeply suspicious that this would introduce a whole other layer of um, abortion or like reproductive justice surveillance, which I think has been less a part of the discussion in the US because healthcare in the US is so privatized. For what it's worth, I think there's a, a broader point that it's important to highlight here that as with many areas of research on technology, we are continuing to focus on a very small set of countries, um, mm -hmm. weird and Western and industrialized and so forth. Um, and they're like, these dynamics will look very different in different national contexts and in different countries where um, different aspects of reproductive justice are criminalized or surveilled. So I think it's a really important area where more research would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, too. And also as well, uh, the ways in which, you know, we're talking about uh, a legal ruling within the United States, but obviously the United States through the global gag order has been imposing sort of restrictions on, you know, various groups that get uh, U.S. funding or aid. To, to prevent them talking about abortion and, and, and reproductive justice more generally throughout the world. So also, you know, the way that U.S. kind of imperial control uh, works outside of just strictly its, its domestic content. Yeah, and um, I do feel like I wonder sometimes what would have happened if I would have interviewed people after this has come out, because you do have that, what Julia was talking about before, where it's like this, like, like, sure, if you've looked at the history of reproduction and you've also, like, done research in lots of other places outside Europe, you are aware of that. But the fact that something like this could happen in the US, I feel like would have probably shaken a lot of my participants and made them rethink the safety of their, or like safety and security of their data in a way that they were not thinking about before um, at all. Or maybe one or two were like very, like a few of them were like hesitantly being like, this could happen. But thankfully we're in Austria, which is like an island of stability and happiness. But yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, that really kind of nicely leads me on to my next question. So um, but kind of back to the period tracking apps, I wonder in terms of this collection of data, so we can talk specifically about period tracking apps, but you know, general surveillance data and, and data ownership, I wonder, um, you know, a lot of a lot of recommendations in the wake of the Roe v. Wade ruling were around like, like we're just basically saying delete your app. But obviously that doesn't necessarily delete the data always. And so I wonder maybe you could talk a little bit about data ownership. And I was particularly thinking transnationally, right? So we think about, you know, and Julie, you kind of touched on this, right? Like uh we we think about like data on say u.s citizens being held in the u.s by a u.s company but then obviously there are transnational cases where you know serbia or or you know other state um is requesting that data so what kind of rules can it be subjected to transnationally and then also the ways in which other entities may own data about you so like um my partner is really into women's football and so the chelsea women's football team has been you know praised for this um you know tracking its players periods and thinking about women's health um in that way but then there's that question i think very few people are asking like well who owns that data does it can your employer own data about you um uh, you know will will they be protect you know if they're in a jurisdiction where the uh, uh, um, you know abortion is criminalized what in your employer has information um about that um and then also kind of julia you had touched on this before too um what that means around like privatized healthcare so obviously in the us this is we're talking about often private insurance companies private healthcare providers but uh you know the nhs uh or other kind of national healthcare industries like who um who has a right to this or, or, or who is getting access um to this to this data and how how might it be used in these kind of more complex cases mm -hmm. yeah the it's a it's a tricky or interesting interesting example because so just for before we go into the maybe nitty-gritty but so there is there's a difference between health data that is collected by health professionals and that's usually it usually falls under much stricter like data protection rules as for example a period tracker and a period tracker is not it's not health data not necessarily um like if you look at the really fine print of the terms of conditions or the privacy policy of fitbit or most of these like trackers 
they will tell you that this is not medical data and you shouldn't be taken as medical advice. I think there's even a, a lawsuit where a Fitbit defended the fact that the the heart rate data that they're collecting is not medical, like medical standard heart rate data, right? So this is, it's like self-track. It's basically, I mean, it's not the same as the data that Facebook gathers from your messages, but it's kind of the same, like at least like legally in terms of like data protection, um, right? And um, so it also means that this data is it's much easier to like share it, sell it with like third parties, um, which is definitely something that happens. Um, and, and so I feel like the question is, at least for me, I'm not sure if I like the framing of like ownership um, because of how it's maybe a bit misleading in terms of like who owns the data and that the person who owns or the whatever company or whatever should then get to decide exactly everything that happens to the data. Because also data works because it's digital. It works completely different from anything, any other physical like object that you could own, like, like land or, or I don't know, something like that. Um, so those framings around ownership, um i don't know they're they're not always maybe the most useful thing to like to frame these discussions through but it's maybe more a question of um like having some sort of say over what happens to this data what julia mentioned before having these like built-in ways of how you could revoke access to something um but then it also doesn't so one of the things that i find or that are very problematic in figuring out this whole question of like what happens with all this data that gets collected and then is used uh, for some other potentially nefarious purpose is that is I some people call these like the downstream effects, right? So like um, your data could be, you could be uploading your data and then you could be telling the company to be like, yes, yes, use it. You can use this, uh, you can use this data, but then the company might sell it and then another company might develop this technological tool that then ends up harming I don't know another group of people that you didn't even know about you didn't even intend to like contribute to that whatsoever and I guess one of the examples is like the Clearview AI right like there's this a facial like data set of just facial images uploaded for research and whatever other purposes but then a got turned into a facial recognition software that then gets used for policing purposes, which doesn't is something that you need to that needs to be addressed as well. And I feel like sometimes the way the question of like who owns who owns this data or um doesn't necessarily always have a good answer to that. Yeah, I would agree um that I think that framing doesn't necessarily have an answer. I think another case that I was thinking about um that I think illustrates this is in the UK, um, the NHS uh, has shared health data on um, undocumented people with the Home Office. And similarly, people who have reported sexual violence have been investigated by the Home Office, and I think in some cases even deported. So I think that question of data ownership when you are coming up against state surveillance um, is quite tricky. Maybe maybe a, uh, like a specific question then to intervene might be, you know, so like obviously both of you seem to be like, or, or criti- critical of the data ownership approach, but I wonder then Roe v. Wade is obviously based on the right to privacy, which has a lot of downstream effects on privacy and healthcare. So do you think privacy is is the correct framing or or do you think that there is more expansive framing to think about these these problems yeah i guess that's that's a really good question it's a big question i guess to to finish up what i wanted to say on data ownership specifically cuz i think the case of the home you know the, the the different ways government departments like the nhs and the home office which we sometimes forget are like both government departments share data i think poses questions for approaches rooted in data ownership because um, you don't own the data that the government collects about you in the same way that you might think you own the data that a period tracker collects about you, even if ultimately that period tracker is sharing it also in lots of ways that you don't know about. 
Um, I think privacy as an overarching framing ha has some uses. Uh, I think other other approaches or framings like data justice or just the, the concept of control, like do you have control over where your data goes, who collects data about you? Because um, in, in the case of NHS data sharing, for example, like what may be useful is simply having kind of like almost like more firewalls between different government departments so that it is part of your right to healthcare that you, that department then doesn't share um, data with law enforcement. But that's really tricky to implement because if you think about it as these are parts of the same institution, which is the British state, like how are you going to technically or legally enforce any kind of a firewall? Although that, that is a campaign that exists currently. So perhaps the, the broader framing that is relevant is simply about criminalization and abolition and all of like legal requirements for privacy, technical requirements for privacy, I think are only ever going to be a stopgap on the underlying issue that people's basic reproductive rights are being criminalized. And you can't like privacy your way out of the state surveilling you. Like the, the power dynamics are p p always going to be skewed so that no amount of like VPNs and um, data obfuscation and privacy trackers are going to ultimately keep you safe if the government has criminalized your, your healthcare rights. Uh, just talking about privacy, maybe the connections between reproduction and reproductive rights are interesting because a lot of the um, reproductive rights are based on the right to privacy, which is an interesting uh, like interconnection between between these two spheres. Um, but I do feel like I like just to add on to that another area of why I think the right to privacy is limited is because all the things that we're talking about here are very collective problems. So also most data is kind of also is relational. So like if I write a message to somebody, there will be data recorded about it. And sure, it will be my data, but it's also someone else's. Mm -hmm. um, and I want an example that is infuriating example, but it's Facebook. If... Um, Facebook used to have these, I don't think they still have them. They, they, they themselves called them shadow profiles. Mm. So it was basically the culmination of all your addresses and phone numbers that other people had in their phone books. And if they gave access to um, their contacts to Facebook, Facebook would store this information, which was basically your information. But when you would have deleted your account or you were trying to get Facebook to delete that, they would say, no, you can't, we can't delete that because we care about privacy and this is someone else's information. Um, and I think privacy, it's just, it kind of fails in addressing these like collective and relational um, problems um, that we are facing when we're talking about all of these, uh, all of these questions. And, I do feel like sometimes the like a more a feminist framing that things around care and collectivity is is interesting in rethinking maybe some of these because you're like at least on like an individual basis of how you're navigating these things because when you're thinking about you know keeping information safe you're not just keeping your own information safe but you're also keeping other people's information safe um so i think for me just one of the big criticizing like points of privacy is just also the individual the individual nature of it if if i can i would like to slightly qualify <laughs> part of what i said in that while i do think ultimately you can't privacy or privacy your way out of state surveillance in the sense that it is only ever going to be a stopgap i think it's also important to not underplay what an important stopgap that is and I think definitely would want to highlight the work of people like the Digital Defense Fund in the U.S., uh, which provides um, digital and privacy and security support to abortion uh, and, and reproductive justice healthcare providers and a lot of other 
sort of grassroots or community oriented digital privacy and uh, digital security organizations, which are like providing this critically important privacy and security work. So yeah, I think it's, a, it's, it's I guess, maybe slightly tricky, but important to hold both in mind that this privacy isn't ultimately going to solve a problem that I think is ultimately about criminalization and abolition. But at the same time, given criminalization and escalating authoritarianism is very much the reality that we're in. Privacy, especially at the community and sort of at this intimate level is incredibly important to be thinking and talking about. That's great, because that kind of leads me into my my last question for you both. Um, so I wonder maybe to to broaden it out a little bit. I just wanted to ask you, Julia, about your research on um, IoT devices and gaslighting because I find that really really interesting. The ways in which um, uh, you know other kinds of technologies that we don't think about, like giving people access to our Internet of Things homes, can ultimately be used for abuse. And then for both of you, kind of to wrap up, even though you can't you know privacy your way out of state surveillance, what what types of recommendations or resources would you recommend to people who are trying trying to um, uh, implement that that very important stopgap measure to protect themselves? So um, with IoT devices and gaslighting, um, this was something that was covered initially by a New York Times investigation and has been discussed a lot by researchers like Leonie Tenscher at UCL. Um, I looked at it specifically as a case study of how designers can anticipate and sort of mitigate some of the ways that technology can be abused. In this case, uh, for example, some abusers have used things like Alexas or smart heating to, um, to, to gaslight. So in order to undermine people's perception of their own reality, for example, by changing the music or changing the temperature in the home. And that's exactly the kind of sort of threat model that conventional cybersecurity practices probably wouldn't anticipate or think about because they think about threats as very much outside of the home, like hackers or thieves. Um, I think the broader point there to maybe connect that research to the discussion we've been having today is that as an increasing amount of our daily and intimate and everyday life is digitized and datafied thinking also of that case study in Poland of like medical records being digitalized. That means that existing forms of abuse are then enabled and perpetuated through technology. And that can be intimate forms of abuse like domestic violence and sexual violence. Um, and then also structural and state forms of abuse like criminalization. And so that means that thinking about how like how to mitigate this and stop this and a lot of that time I think that will include not building safer systems necessarily but actually like dismantling systems that are enabling forms of abuse uh, will continue to be really important um yes I think uh I think uh I think my answer will look very very similar um because I guess it's the same it's this what I what I mentioned to before earlier right that's like individual solutions that maybe are also technologically built versus like really big systemic changes um so like there are a few things that will definitely like keep you safer uh online but it's it's just in thinking of like what are like the four things that you should be doing it's just it's really hard to like come up with like different suggestions there are a lot of really good guides out there um, that, that, well, there are some, there are a lot of guides out there. There are some that are really good. I think I'll send you, I'll send you, well, maybe probably both of us send you some of the links that are, that are more useful. Um, Cause I also know that after um, Roe v. Wade got uh, taken down, there were suggestions of like, just use a Google spreadsheet instead where I'm like, it's still it's still online and it's still accessible so like you're not really fixing the problem you're just moving away from the period tracker um but there are some like suggestions of what people can do to stay safe and what technological um platforms or services they can use to like help them stay safe um um but yeah like like julia said i guess in the end privacy is important and that's also why we're both doing this like this research or protecting I guess your own 
let's say over your bodily autonomy and your decision making and having this like sphere that you know is outside um outside that influence is very crucial um but in the long run we're criticizing the limitations of these things to like contribute to you know on dismantling all the larger systemic problems that if i could add on the kind of advice front um one one guide that i would always recommend is the diy guide to feminist cybersecurity which doesn't specifically mention reproductive justice or healthcare at all and is very much about sort of generalized things like encryption like using encrypted messengers like signal but i think there's a lot to be said about generally uh, building better privacy and security habits um proactively so that if an emergency does come up like for example an unplanned pregnancy and your government has criminalized pregnancy you're not having to learn those privacy mm. issues from scratch uh, and then or you might be able to help a family member or friend in a similar situation uh which kind of brings me to like a knock knock on point which is that i think a lot of security advice is often framed i think stuff you just said in this very individualized way that's also very tools oriented so like download signal and i i i'm always telling people to download signal i would knock that as a piece of security advice but i think this isn't necessarily something that just has to be a matter of like individuals figuring this out and figuring out what to download i think making security and privacy a communal thing like talking about it with your friends and family maybe sitting down with a, with a friend or with a group of friends to in like better your digital privacy like go through the DIY guide to feminist cybersecurity together um is a piece of advice i would always give because i think something that we haven't really touched on i think generally isn't discussed enough in privacy spaces is that these topics are incredibly scary and anxiety inducing. I think it can be really difficult. I think it's a barrier for many people to even start thinking about how to improve their digital privacy, because once you start thinking about it, particularly when it touches on these like really intimate spheres, like the criminalization of reproduction, um, it can just be really incapacitating. And so one, I think, antidote to that or one thing that can make it more helpful is to do it together and to do it communally and support each other through it.